For now, I just want to give you um, some uh, biographical details um, that might be um, kind of interesting parallel um, to um, the, basically the entire body of work uh, by Fitzgerald that we've seen. Um, last time, we already saw that um, Fitzgerald was married to Selder, um, Sayer, um, and she was a very, um, um, you know, basically the, the um, social center um, in Montgomery, Alabama, where he was stationed. Um, so um, her, he referred to her um, as the first American flapper. So obviously that has resonances uh, for the story. Bernice uh, bobs her hair, you know, we know that that is where he gets the part of his inspiration for. Um, and so it, it actually, um, and he has other stories about flappers, as we know he has a whole collection called Flappers and Philosophers. So um, Selda has been there pretty much um, you know, from quite early on um, in his short stories. But really the work in which Selda has um, the most important presence is um, Tenderest the Night. So just some interesting details, some interesting parallels. Some of you might have been surprised that um, Nicole refers to Dick as Captain Diver, right? <clears throat> when she writes to him uh, from the sanatorium. Um, and it turns, it's not really very well accounted for <coughs> because Dick, in fact, um, did not really fight. Um, he was considered too valuable um, to be lost in battle. So he was in Switzerland, he was not in combat, um, but um, Nicole refers to him as Captain Diver. And it turns out that this is a kind of interesting personal uh, connection to um, Fitzgerald's own life and his relation to Selda. It turns out that um, in the uh, Fitzgerald collection that I was talking about last time uh, at the University of South Carolina, um, there are a couple of very prized uh, uh, items in that collection. Uh, one is this briefcase uh, saying F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Fifth Avenue. Um, and the other is this hip flask uh, with an inscription from it. Um, and it turns out that this is a gift from Zelda to Scott before they were married, when they were just courting. And this is the inscription on that flask to First Lieutenant F. Scott Fitzgerald, 65th Infantry, Camp Sheridan, Forget-Me-Not, Selder, September 19, 1918, Montgomery, Alabama. So it turns out that the, the military rank is a small personal detail um, in the courtship, the attribution um, of military rank that in fact was not really the real professional identity for Fitzgerald at any point, but um, she fondly, I mean, he was there, he was in Montgomery, he was not fighting uh, either in Montgomery, Alabama, but um, she referred to him as first lieutenant, that's a more dignified title, and we'll see that titles actually, whether one is referred to as doctor or mister, actually makes a difference um, in Tenderness Night. So from the very beginning, a kind of title consciousness on the part of Fitzgerald that gets translated into the Captain Diver in Tenderness the Night. Um, but that's just a very, very small connection. The most important connection, as some of you might know, has to do with a very long history, long and painful history, um, of mental instability on the part of Selder, basically from the 1930s 
on, um, she never was not inside clinic at some point, you know, her career until she died. Um, she was in and out of mental institutions, um, some more luxurious than others, some not looking like a mental institution at all. So we'll begin with those. Anyway, this is the um, reference to him as Captain Diver in uh, Tenders Tonight. But um, this is the, one of the first that she went to. I think it might even have been the first uh, called Prangwins in uh, Prangwins, whatever, in Switzerland. Um, uh, and we'll see a picture of her room there. That was in 1930. Uh, and as you can see, almost like a hotel room, very, you know, not looking like our idea of a mental institution, certainly not the place where Da would go to when he goes to Jackson, Mississippi. So at the very other end of the social spectrum, um, that's where she started out when she began her long career of medicalization. Um, and this is um, her, the picture of her release uh, from Pronglings. And you can see that she actually looks very different from when she was 18, um, the almost unrecognizable, um, the two of them even, well, I mean, I guess it's separated by a number of years as well, but really um, looking very, very different. Um, and that was, I think that was the, the earliest instance in 1930. Um, she, um, even, that was a, a unduly optimistic diagnosis that she was recovered, that she, that, that she recovered from um, the, the, the breakdown uh, because she was very soon hospitalized again um, and this time in another even more famous uh, Swiss clinic, uh, the Burghosley, uh, which is where Jung actually practiced. Um, so in, and, and I think Freud actually was there briefly as well. So in Tender is the Night, there's a reference to Freud that Dick Diver has to get to Vienna before Freud retires, and there's also um, the Swiss clinic. So all of that is, is in part, um, it kind of uh, has the connection to Seller's own medical history in Switzerland. Um, then, and then she went to a bunch of other ones. Um, I can't even keep track of all the ones, different ones that she went to. Uh, but at some point in 1932, she went to Johns Hopkins, she was back in this, they were back in this country. She went to Johns Hopkins Hospital, and that turned out to uh, have quite an important effect on both of them, because when she was at Hopkins, um, what part of the treatment was that she would have to write for two hours a day. That was part of the medical treatment. Um, so she started writing, and <laughs> she wrote a novel called um, Save Me the Walls, uh, which was published in 1932. Um, it was. Um, only about a thousand copies sold, so it, you know, it didn't make its way into American literature exactly. Um, but it's interesting in many ways because it is Selda using her own uh, medical history, using her marriage to uh, Scott Fitzgerald, um, using all that personal stuff as material um, for this for this novel. And Fitzgerald actually tried to. Um, stop it from being published or try to revise it very significantly uh, before it was published. Um, and then after it was published, he had this opinion about his wife's novel, plagiaristic, unwise in every way, should not have been written. Um, so this is a, in many ways, a kind of a long and painful example of the many, many in 
instances in American literature of the husband having some control um, over the wife's writing. The f most famous example is Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, right? The letters were actually edited by him um, after her death. Um, so in this case, she did get it published, but it didn't reach a very wide audience, and he was against it from day one. Um, the daughter, Scotty, had a somewhat different opinion. Uh, she just said that this sort of competition is traditionally the bane of literary romances. Um, so at least she had a fairly clear-eyed view about the marriage, that there was quite a bit of competition going on, even though obviously he was the one who was the writer. She has some aspirations as well, and if she had been encouraged, might actually have, have had more of a career. Um, so the element of competition uh, between husband and wife, I think, is quite an important theme. Even though um, Fitzgerald tried to downplay it, you know, in saying that his wife's the one who really had no talent, she had to plagiarize from him, um, that he must have registered the fact that she was more of a competitor um, than he let on. So we'll see how that plays out in the dynamics between um, Dick Diver and Nicole, and who wins out. So there's one other sort of interesting, this is actually not so important, but just a kind of uh, point of reference. Um, as we know, there's another woman, significant woman in Tenders the Night, Rosemary, the actress. Um, and it turned out that I think this is, it's generally thought that this is the person um, that Rosemary is based on. And we can sort of see that you know she has this very wholesome, innocent look, um, but she also was tremendously disciplined as an actress. Um, and indeed, she had a very distinguished career as an actress. Um, so this is the, the, the sort of the, um, the, the Hollywood contribution um, to Tender is the Night. But I want to emphasize um, another. Um, uh, today's lecture actually will be more about cinematic techniques. Um, so in, even though she personifies Hollywood's contribution to Tender is the Night, um, actually is in terms of formal techniques that film would have more of an input on the narrative technique of Tenderest Night. Um, but I want to go back very briefly to, um, to something that we've been talking about all semester, which is the very important um, and in many ways uh, variously played out dynamics between the have and the have not. Um, so just, I know you guys might not have gone to the end of this novel, so I apologize for giving you, but there's really no way I could talk about the novel without talking about the ending. Um, so without knowing the, all the details in between, this is the last two paragraphs of Tender is the Night. But he became entangled with a girl who worked in a grocery store. And he, also, he was also involved in a lawsuit about some medical question. So he left Lockport. After that, he didn't ask for the children to be sent to America and didn't answer when Nicole wrote asking him if he needed money. In the last letter she had from him, he told her that he was practicing in Geneva, New York, and she got the impression that he had settled down with someone to keep house for him. She looked up Geneva in an atlas and found it was in the heart of the Finger Lakes section and considered a pleasant place. Perhaps so, she liked to think. His career was biding his time, again like Grant's and Galena. His latest note was postmarked from Cornell, New York, which is some distance 
from Geneva in a very small town. In any case, he's almost certainly in that section of the country in one town after in one town or another. So those last five years, uh, five of the coolest words in American literature, um, he's a total nobody by the end of the novel in one town or another. Um, so this is a novel that um, moves very fast. You know, he, we start out with him um, at the top of his profession, full promise. In fact, when we first see him, he is idolized by everyone um, around him. Um, to get from there to this ending, that the woman in his life will be someone that he sees in the grocery store, and not even that, um, getting into trouble of his very modest medical practice, uh, drifter, a drifter going from one small town um, to another. And there's the additional insult that um, he starts out in Zurich, Switzerland, a city that everyone knows about, to Geneva, New York, which Nicole has to look up in an atlas. Um, and he can even hold on to this Geneva. So um, it is in many ways the ending is the beginning, but a highly ironized beginning. Uh, so just to, um, we've seen this structure before, and I promise you we'll see it one more time. Um, so um, the last three novels that we read basically have the same structure, but for totally, to totally different effect. So from what we know at this point, we know that at least one other novel has this circular structure, the ending is the beginning, which is for whom the bell tolls. So we've talked about this, but just want to give you those two sentences. Beginning, he laid flat on the brown pine needle floor of the forest, and in the last line, he could feel his heart beating against the pine needle floor of the forest. Um, so it is Hemingway's very tender rendition uh, of a life that could be construed as the life of a have-not, right? You know, we talk about that possibility that maybe he really has nothing, all he has is a broken leg, um, that very ironic reading, which is not to be dismissed. But against that ironic reading, um, Hemingway invokes this very lyrical um, image of in the ending is the beginning uh, as a kind of uh, endless deferral of the moment of death. So he's still alive, it's almost as if he were beginning all over again, and we as the readers want him to begin all over again. It is that illusion perpetrated in our minds, the reader's mind, that Hemingway is able um, to write a novel that in some sense doesn't really have an ending, right? You know, if the, in the ending is the beginning, the actual death scene is deferred to a point of infinity. So this is Hemingway's very tender uh, wrapping up of the life of uh, Robert Jordan in For Whom the Bell Tolls. And in contrast to that, Fitzgerald is about as brutal as can be. Um, it's, um, so he you know, is actually is um, kind of, sort of surprising that, um, that he would want to be so thoroughgoing um, in the degradation of Dick Diver. But that's, that's he, how he wants to write. Um, so today we'll look at that ending, um, the cruelty of that, and link that um, to 
um, the question of narrative speed. We know that the novel is moving very fast. A lot of things have to happen for us to get to that very, very low point at the end of the novel. So what has happened and what does Fitzgerald have to do in order to speed up the narrative to such an extent that he would get to that absolute low point. So um, last time we talked about um, montage, we talked about flashback, right, um, as two cinematic techniques that are important to Fitzgerald. And today we'll look at three very, very common uh, filmic techniques and the way that they actually help to speed up the narrative. Um, it is not self evident that a close-up would in fact speed up the narrative, but the way Fitzgerald uses his close-ups actually um, does. And it's not always clear that cross-cutting would speed up the narrative. Once again, he uses this very familiar technique to move things forward. And then we have the very fast motion of the negative resolutions, things being taken away from, from, um, from Dick Diver. So um, let's look at a couple of instances of close-up, um, and this is just so obviously visual that it's, it's sort of hard to look away from that without actually, with how to read this without having some kind of visual image. Um, this is about Rosemary, as you know, she has this crush on him, on Dick Diver, um, and really desperately wants um, you know, to, to have an affair. Um, so, but it doesn't quite happen for, for a while. Presently, she kissed him several times in the mouth, her face getting big as it came up to him. He had never seen anything so dazzling as the quality of her skin. And since sometimes beauty gives back the images of one's best thoughts, he thought of his responsibility about Nicole and of the responsibility of her being two doors down across the corridor. The rain's over, he said, do you see a sun on the slate? Rosemary stood up and leaned down and said her most sincere thing to him. We are such actors, you and I. Um, so, okay, so, you know, we're starting out in, you know, it, it, on, on one kind of register. Um, we're starting out with the notion of um, Rosemary as this kind of lovesick puppy um, that's just pining for him um, and, 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 and unrequited love on top of that that is going nowhere. Um, so, and so the first part up to the last uh, three lines of that, of that passage um, is really all about Dick Diver being this noble person, even though he could have taken advantage of Rosemary and she's pining for him. He could have t easily taken advantage of her. He's not doing that because he's thinking of his responsibility to Nicole, two dollars down the whore. All that is really about the nobility and magnanimity um, and uprightness of Dick Diver. Um, the last three lines swing us to the other end of other side of the narrative. And all of a sudden, we see what kind of a person Rosemary is. Um, that in fact, we don't really, and she's completely truthful. Rosemary is never not truthful. Um, even though she's an actress, she actually is the most truthful person in the novel. Um, and this is a, an absolute a statement that is completely right about both of them. She is an actress. Um, so it's very hard to know where, um, you know, where the acting begins and where the feeling 
where the acting ends and where the feeling begins. Um, she's so disciplined that she would act in a certain way and then she runs into an obstacle and she stops acting in that way as she is doing right there. You know, it's like trying out, you know, one rude scene that is going nowhere and then suddenly seeing that maybe she should act in a different fashion. Um, so there is um, a way in which the emotional life of Rosemary has been completely professionalized um, to such an extent that um, that she's always acting, which is not even to say that she's not um, sincere and um, Fitzgerald credits her as being sincere. It is just that that is what she is. I don't think that she's capable of having any kind of emotions outside of her professional identity as an actress. Um, so this is, um, you know, this, this is what she is. So it is the Dick's blindness to that, that he doesn't realize um, that she's not exactly a lovesick puppy. She is someone who is actually acting in a particular fashion um, and who not only has a full understanding of what kind of a person she is, but she has a full understanding of what he is, right? So it's not surprising that she should know herself to be primarily an actress. It's not an accusation to say that that's what she is above everything else. She's primarily an actress. Um, so she has that degree of self-knowledge, but she also has the knowledge about him that even though he is supposedly a doctor, he actually is at heart an actor. And that is an accusation, a much more serious accusation directed at him than it is directed at her because she has been totally upfront. I mean, you know, she's not, she never, she never is not an actress um, from the beginning of the novel to the end. She is defined by that. Um, he is supposed to be a doctor, so he's not supposed to be an actor. But it turn out, turns out that maybe the innermost truth about him is that he is an actor and that all the, all the appearance of nobility, all the appearance of uprightness might turn out to be an act that is putting up for her benefit, an act that is putting up for his own benefit. Sometimes we can act for ourselves as well. So it shows a degree of knowledge of him and a clear eye on the sentimental on lovesick evaluation of exactly what kind of a man he is. So it is the most acute statement about Dick Diver that we've seen up to this point. This is quite early, page 105. So it is that acuteness, that astute knowledge about a man that she's supposedly idolizing that gives the lie actually to the adoration that she seems to be reigning on him um, that is actually completely within bounds. She's practicing, you know, what if what it's like to be an enduring lovesick puppy. She's acting that part, but it's a part that she's just doing it very well. Um, so the just to, to move this to the to analysis of the narrative technique, um, the moment, oops, um, that um, that that when we have that kind of sudden switch in perspective, um, actually comes with um, a visual detail that her face is coming closer and closer to him and 
her face is getting big as it comes up to him. So let's remember that one visual detail, that her face completely fills his uh, field of vision, um, that he sees nothing but her face. So let's keep that one visual detail in mind and see what Fitzgerald does with that detail, that close-up. So this is another scene quite a bit later, um, actually a flashback, so going back to the point when Nicole uh, was still in the sanatorium when she was asking him to take care of her. Nicole was up in her head now, cool as cool, trying to collate the sentimentalities of her childhood as deliberate as a man getting drunk after battle. He breathed over her shoulder and turned her insistently about. She kissed him several times, her face getting big every time he came close, her hands holding him by the shoulders. It's raining hot. Suddenly, there was a booming from the wine slopes across the lake. Cannons were shooting and half-bearing clouds in order to break them. At hell-bearing clouds in order to break them. The lights of the promenade went off, went on again. Um, so the, we get that the repetition of that same visual detail. Um, they're kissing, her face getting very big as it gets close to him. So the repetition of the same close-up. And what is odd is that we get exactly the same narrative sequence after that close-up. After that visual detail of the face getting um, big, we get the exact switch to a different narrative register, right? So this is not Nicole uh, passing judgment on him, so it's not this, exactly the same structure as um, the incident with Rosemary, but there's a switch, abrupt switch to a different sequence of narrative. In this case, it's such a quite a trivial event. Um, they, were, they were shooting cannons in order to break up the hell bearing clouds, I guess is something you do, do in Switzerland. Um, but the point is that cannons were being fired right? um, in peacetime Switzerland, um, which is a kind of surprising fact in itself, since we're no, not so familiar with cannons being fired for that purpose. But given the fact that we'll be seeing the intertwined, the superimposed um, images of love and war, the firing of the cannons, is certainly not trivial at this point. So at the very least, we can say that there's an intrusion into this love scene of the undeniable and historical proven reality of war, of World War I. It's just a fact of history that there was such a war. So this is, Fitzgerald is not going to recreate that war for us, except for the going over the battleground and talking about it, taking you know, 20 lives to advance a foot, um, that reference that we saw last time. He's not going to go further in the direction of World War I than he has done so far. But he is going to give us echoes of World War I in civilian situations. And not only that, but he's going to use that as a narrative follow up to a love scene, specifically to a close up when the woman's face is getting bigger and bigger. So we can say that what the close up is doing for Fitzgerald is, especially the woman's face getting bigger and bigger, is 
a dramatization, a visualization of the woman's power over the man, right? So when Rosemary's face is getting so big that she fills the entire visual tableau, that is the point when we see that Rosemary actually knows exactly what kind of a man to die for, is that she's absolutely clear-eyed about him. Um, here, there's not that equivalent clear-eyed judgment from the part of Nicole because she's still a patient. She hasn't gotten to that point yet. But Fitzgerald is giving us the equivalent, the structural equivalent of that kind of judgment in the sense that there's a sudden breakup of the love scene and the replacement of that love scene by something that is like an intimation of battle. So at the very least, we should be prepared for the fact that maybe war is not extraneous to love. Maybe war is actually organic to love. That maybe war is the narrative structure of love. That love takes the form of a battle between the two people who are conjoined in this fashion. Um, so this is, um, in many ways, a kind of a prelude um, <clears throat> to a kind of visual tableau um, that is a, a kind of a gesture towards the, the future of that narrative. Um, but I want to look at another technique now, um, which is also very prominent um, and very unmistakable um, in uh, Tenderest Night, which is the technique of cross-cutting. Um, so this is in book two of uh, Tenderest Night, and especially in section 10 of, of book two. So the beginning of section 10 begins with, in Zurich in September, Dr. Diver had tea with baby Warren. So at this point, still a doctor, um, and it is in that professional capacity that he would have tea with baby Warren, Nicole's sister, who's trying to get a doctor to take care of her, buy a doctor for Nicole. Um, so they're having tea and talking about various things, and he's still you know, not agreeing to being a lifelong caretaker for Nicole at this point. Um, but this is what happens on page 158. One page down, the next page actually, um, we get a sudden abrupt switch to Nicole's point of view, told from her point of view, and narrated by Nicole herself as in the first person. Um, so let's see, this is outside of her exchange, um, the letters that she wrote, writes to Dick Diver. Um, we'll get a sense of how Nicole thinks uh, by following this, um, this, this kind of monologue uh, that is given to us uh, as counterpoint to the tea between Dick Diver and, and, and Baby Warren. How do you do, lawyer? We're going to Como tomorrow for a week and then back to Zurich. That's why I wanted you and sister to settle this, because it doesn't matter to us how much I'm allowed. We're going to live very quietly in Zurich for two years, and Dick has enough to take care of us. No, baby. I'm more practical than you think. It's only for clothes and things I'll need it. Why? That's more than, than the estate. Can the estate really afford to give me all that? I know I never managed to spend it. Do you have that much? Why do you have, why do you have more? Is it because I'm supposed to be incompetent? All right, let my share pile up then. No, they refuses to have anything, whatever, to do with it. I'll have to feel bloated for us both. I'm not even reading it very well. This could have been read much better. Um, to get the tone exactly, what a sharp businesswoman, Nicole.
is in the space of one short exchange she achieves three things she manages to get her share of the estate right so you know she only needs it begins by saying that, okay we can live very modestly on Dick's pay we don't need the money I just need it for clothes and you know incidentals so very modest requirement very modest demand on the estate she gets the amount she says is too much she checks out to see how much baby is getting and finds out that in fact what she's getting is less than what baby gets so she gets an increase right then and there on the spot more than that there's of course the question whether Dick will have a share of that income and she's admitting to the fact that she will have to feel bloated for the two of them that he's not going to get a penny of that income so in the space of one paragraph that switch from Dick's point of view to Nicole's point of view is in fact an incredible fast forward of the narrative changing our conception of Nicole from a patient in a mental institution to a sharp businesswoman who is going to keep a very, very tight control over the money that comes to her. Um, that we shouldn't forget, after all. She is the granddaughter of a man um, who has a huge fortune, who has made that huge fortune. And there's a constant reference, as in uh, For Whom the Bell Toast, the link, the cross-generation link to the grandfather. Um, in Tender is the Night, there's also a cross-generational cross link to Nicole's grandfather, that maybe she is more her grandfather's granddaughter than we may think. So the effect of that cross-cutting is to take the narrative away from Dick's side of the story and deposit the agency strictly on Nicole's side. She is the one who's actually calling the shots. She's the one who actually has the financial control over the future of that marriage. Um, so it, 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 let me just give you one other um, much more smaller incidence of that cross-cutting. Um, all of this, the, the many pages after that cross-cutting is told in the first person in Nicole's voice. Um, and so from being a mental institution, suddenly she's married to, 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 to Dick Diver, all that is settled. She has the control over the money. Um, but she also is beginning to complain um, about the particular shape the marriage is taking. But I was gone again by that time, trains and beaches, they were all one. That was why he took me traveling. But after my second child, my little girl Topsy, was born, everything got dark again. If I could get word to my husband, who has seen fit to desert me here, to leave me in the hands of incompetence, you tell me my baby is black. That's farcical. That's very cheap. We went to Africa merely to see King God since my principal interest in life is archaeology. I'm tired of knowing nothing and being reminded of it all the time. So page 161, um, we can see the speed of this development of that particular interpretation of the marriage from the beginning when she's not even married 
to Dick Diver to the next page 159 when she's married to him but retaining full control of her finances to page 161 when she is in a position to complain about his behavior as a husband. And what is odd here, and I think it's actually quite heavy-handed on the part of Fitzgerald, <coughs> is that once again, there's a gratuitous, completely inexplicable intrusion of a racialized detail um, in the person of Nicole's daughter, Topsy, um, that my baby is black, is really coming out of nowhere, except for the fact that we know that Fitzgerald has a long history of racializing particular characters at critical moments. So let's just, oh, and you guys know that Topsy is a reference to um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? To Harry Beecher Stowe's novel. Um, and um, Topsy is a black character and is one of the most vivid black characters in that novel. So it's Fitzgerald's kind of backhanded tribute to a 19th century classic and resurrecting the name of a black character, um, totally inappropriate name for the daughter of Nicole, but nonetheless, that's what he chooses to give her. Um, so this is just to, just to flesh out the features of the history of racialization um, in Fitzgerald. In The Great Gatsby, we know that there really are no black characters in The Great Gatsby, but there's this constant intrusion of black characters, strangely. So as we cross Blackwell's Island, a limousine passes driven by a white chauffeur in which sat three modish Negroes, two bucks and a girl. I laugh aloud as the yokes of the eyeballs rub toward us in haughty rivalry. So this is Gatsby going to town with uh, Nick and um, all of a sudden the intrusion of the three blacks in a limousine driven by a white chauffeur. Um, that is a kind of a visual metaphor uh, for the upstart Gatsby trying to um, to elevate himself higher um, than he than he should be. Um, in this case, it the racialization um, that that we see in Tender Is the Night um, has to do, I think, with a moment of marital volatility. Um, we know that she actually has control of the basic structural feature of that marriage, which is the money, um, and the. Given that control, she is in a position to put a particular spin on that marriage. And the marriage has to do with neglect, with the fact that they are traveling because he is he needs to travel, that she is an involuntary appendage um, to his constant travel, and um, that he's neglecting her. So this is, in many ways, a very early paving of the ground for the eventual outcome of the novel that is highlighted by Nicole presenting herself as the victimized party in the marriage, right? So to racialize herself and to racialize her daughter is a very specific and I guess tested technique of demonstration a degree of grievance, a degree of felt oppression on her part, even though she's not really black, it's almost as if she were the black person in that marriage, right? So that's what the metaphor is doing for her. She's anything but black, but she's treated as if she were black. That's what she's claiming 
So we don't really know if we agree with her yet, but this is her, Nicole's interpretation of the marriage, is that she is the oppressed party in that marriage. Um, so let's look at one other instance of cross-cutting uh, to Nicole, and this is, once again, ticking the narrative agency, at least ticking this, landing the story on Nicole's side. Dick, why don't you why did you regis register why did you register Mr. and Mrs. Diver instead of Doctor and Mrs. Diver? I just wonder. It just floated through my mind. You taught me that work is everything, and I believe you. You used to say a man knows things, and when he stops knowing things, he is like anybody else. And the thing is to get power before he stops knowing things. If you want to turn topsy-turvy, all right. But must your Nicole follow you walking on her hands, darling? Um, so I think that by page 162, one page further down, the shape of what is to come is pretty much unmistakable. And it is conveyed very much through a tone of voice, um, through in this case, almost a repetition of exactly the same kind of structure that we've seen between Dick and Rosemary. Rosemary is the one who, on page 105, already has seen through Dick Diver. She has seen through him so that he, she can pass the most wounding judgment on him, that he's not a doctor, he's an actor. Um, Nicole has arrived at that conclusion on page 160. To, that he is not a doctor. A doctor is supposed to know, to have medical knowledge. That's what makes a medical doctor a medical doctor, is that he has more knowledge than his patient. But she knows at this point that, in fact, he doesn't have any more knowledge than the average person, that he's lost his claim to being a doctor. And so, you know, there are not that many more identities available to him once he's lost that claim to a professional identity. She's not saying outright that he's, a doc, that he's an actor, but she's implying as much. And there's that added detail about his world being turned topsy-turvy, um, as well as the naming of the thing, that the thing is to get power before he stops knowing things. Um, it is naming exactly what it is that Dick Diver has failed to do. If he had done things right, he would have had absolute control of the marriage before he loses out in the Department of Knowledge. But now that he is lost out in the Department of Knowledge, he's not going to have power in that marriage as well. So the very sharp, clear-eyed, absolutely unsentimental judgment of her husband is very much an echo of what Rosemary has, has intuited much earlier. Um, and it comes, it comes over to us, comes across to reader, once again, through a technique of cross-cutting. So, um, you know, I would, I would say that the, the sort of the, the emptying out of any kind of sustenance, of any moral sustenance in Dick Diver has come very, very early. And it's through this complete, the steady erosion of any admiration um, for him on the part of the two women who started out as great um, idolizers of him. Um, so now we've gone to the point where we actually see 
the speed of the of the negative resolution picking up. The speed becomes just faster and faster. Um, so this is the first. Um, the, so the, the the couple there's three basically there's three points of no return for Dick Diver on his way to losing his medical practice in Lockport. Um, the first point of no return is the fight he gets uh, with the Cavaliere. He walks past the staring uh, Carabinieri and up to the grinning face, hit it with a smashing left beside the jaw. The man dropped to the floor. This is a cab driver that he got into a fight with. For a moment, he stood over him in triumph, but even as the first pang of doubt shot through him, the world reel. He was clubbed down, and fists and boots beat on him in a strange tattoo. He felt his nose break like a shingle, and his eyes jerk as they had snapped back on the rubber band into his head. A rip splintered under his stamping heel. Momentarily, he lost consciousness, regained it as he was raised to a sitting position, and his wrists jerked together with handcuffs. The plainclothes lieutenant, whom he had knocked down, poised himself, drew back his arm, and smashed him to the floor. Um, this is a very brutal scene, lots of people getting shot, and Dick Diver, it's important to point out, to point out it's not exempt from that violence. And this is the first emptying out of his professional identity um, that he, a doctor is supposed to be treating someone who's been subjected to that kind of, of, of violence. And instead, it turns out that he is the one who needs a doctor to take care of him. Um, so um, this is what happens when you have things happening very fast. And this is um, an image, actually, of the uh, Carabinieri, which is, is still is kind of sinister looking. Uh, but this is the person, the gang of them, actually, beating up on Dick Diver. Um, so what is interesting um, is that even though things are actually happening, raining down fast, thick and fast, on Dick Diver, he's actually accused of being moving too fast. We see that various people accuse him of various things. We've seen Rosemary is accusing him of something. Nicole accusing him of something, and he's now being accused by his partner in the clinic um, in, in this conversation between the uh, friends and his wife. For shame, Catherine said, you are the solid one, you do the work. It's a case of hair and tortoise, and in my opinion, the hair's race is almost done. Franz let himself believe with ever-increasing conviction that Dick traveled intellectually and emotionally at such a rate of speed the vibrations jogging. So the two of them talking behind his back saying that, you know, that he's not a, such a great partner to begin with. And we see the consequence of that kind of conversation between friends and his wife uh, when they're talking about dissolving that medical partnership. This is no go, he says suddenly. Well, that's occurred to me, friends admitted. Your heart isn't in this project anymore, Dave. I know. I want to leave. We should strike some arrangement about taking Nicole's money up gradually. I thought about that too, Dick. I've seen this coming. I'm able to arrange other backing, and it would be possible to take all your money out by the end of the year. Dick had not intended to come to a decision so quickly, nor was he prepared for friends so readily acquiescence in the break. Yeah, he was relieved. Without, not without desperation, he had long felt the ethics of his profession dissolving into a lifeless mass. So this is the speed of the breakup of that medical practice against, again, at a speed 
that Dick had not counted on, that he had not asked for. It is somebody else's speed that is dictated the narrative development. Um, and I'll just give you, I know that we're almost running out of time, so I'll give you the final part of that resolution, um, again, it's in fast motion. We get, actually, I'm going to skip this, because um, I know that we're running out of time. So this, is, um, this will be on the PowerPoint. Uh, but I'm just going to um, go to the very end of the narrative um, about love as war. We've been seeing the superimposition um, of love and World War I all the way through. And finally, we see the intrusion of World War I into this description of Nicole's idea of what the marriage is like. Again, she struggled with it, fighting him, with her small, fine eyes, with the plush arrogance of a top dog, with her nascent transference to another man, with the accumulated resentment of years. She fought him with her money and her faith that her sister disliked him and was behind her now, with the thought of the new enemies he was making with his bitterness. For this inner battle, she used even her weaknesses, fighting bravely and courageously with the old cans and crockery and bottles, empty receptacles of his expiated sins, outrages, mistakes. And suddenly, in the space of two minutes, she achieved her victory and justified herself to herself without lie or subterfuge, cut the court forever. Okay. Two minutes for her to come to the final decision about her marriage. And this is the final image, and this, I would just say this is a great moment to pair up with the barber uh, scene, the rape scene in For Whom the Bell Tolls. The mirror in front of Nicole reflected the passage between the man's side and the woman's, and Nicole started up at the sight of Tommy Bobbin, the man she's going to marry, entering and willing sharply into the man's shop. She knew with a flush of joy that there was going to be some kind of showdown. In a minute, Dick came into Nicole's booth, his expression emerging, annoyed from behind the towel of his hastily rinsed face. Your friend has worked himself up into a state. He wants to see us together, so I agree to have it over with. Come along. But my hair is half cut. Never mind. Come along. Resentfully, she had the staring call first, removed the towels. Feeling messy and unadorned, she followed Dick from the hotel. Outside, Tommy bent over her hand. We'll go to the cafe, the alleys, said Dick. So the same barber's shop scene, the same cutting of the hair, except that in this case, the hair is only half cut. It is the speed of that resolution. The marriage is ended so hastily that the hair cutting job is not even completely done, but that's the story. Cheryl wants to tell. It's a hastily done job. 